Hey, everybody, and welcome back to the Awards Radar Podcast, or if we come up with a better name, which, considering it's been almost a month, we're probably not going to. Uh, as always, I'm Joey, and I am joined once again by Miles. Hey. Steve. Hello, hello. And it, I believe, is triumphant return to podcasting, Robert Hamer. Yes, this is my my first time on the Awards Radar Podcast. And we're, and we're immediately going to talk about The Dark Knight Rises. Awesome. <laughs> I uh, For those who, who were fans of the award circuit, Robert was a frequent contributor earlier on to the podcast, normally leading to an argument of some sort, which is which was fine. Some people needed to be argued with. But uh, in the last handful of years was often mentioned as like the looming specter of uh, who's right and who's wrong. So now we have him in person, which I feel like is an upgrade. So, you know, go us. So what have you uh, what have you been up to? Keep people up to date on uh, on what brought you uh, back into the fold besides me on my hands and knees begging. Oh, um, well, I, I have uh, been through quite a lot lately. Um, I went out into the civilian world for a while, left the Navy for a while and then rejoined the selected reserves just because I had a, a feeling I was going to need to. Uh, that hunch ended up being correct. The COVID-19 recession hit me pretty bad, and uh, I was laid off along with a couple of dozen other employees. So now I'm uh, chasing employment somewhere else, but I've also found uh, um, some free time on my hands to start writing again. I've, I've had that itch lately, so this is, this is my chance to do it. So the too-long-didn't-read version of that is now you work for Trump? Um, yeah. Yeah, for the next hopefully week and a half and then hopefully uh we'll get a, a change in management it's 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 a it's a wonderful twist on the if you can't beat him join him it's i'm gonna try to beat him join him then beat him right exactly working, working from the inside i love it all right miles how are you I couldn't be better. My girlfriend's birthday was yesterday, so I spent the entire day hanging up uh, movie posters of stuff we've seen together. Cool. Which uh, which posters? Uh, well, we got The Dark Knight Rises, of course. All right. I'm only half kidding. We've got one of the whole uh, trilogy. So we got a Batman wall, a Marvel wall, a Star Wars wall, and then a horror wall behind me. What's on the horror wall? Uh, we got Grindhouse, uh, The Shining, From Dusk Till Dawn, and Psycho. All right. Not bad. What's the best movie of the bunch? Quick. Psycho. Robert? Um, Psycho. I mean, of <laughs> course. Steve? Psycho. Yeah. Yeah, Psycho's the right answer. So Grindhouse is the most movie. It sure is. Yeah. I do love that experience that 17 people got of seeing it in a movie theater. Well, I had to get my DVD from Canada because it's the only way you can get the full theatrical version with both movies together. Uh, otherwise, you have to get them as individuals, and it's so much worse. Yeah. Who's who's, uh, who's whispering? Yeah, what is that? It's like a horror movie. Yeah, yeah, we're pretty close to uh, Halloween, so it's I, I heard something like, I don't like something. I don't like Robert. I don't like Steve. I don't like we, it's the it's yeah. the voice. It's the it's the voice of the podcast. Like uh, I almost want to keep that in, but we we won't. Do we have to turn this into Ghost Hunters? Yeah, we're gonna do a little myth busting also. This is a Mythbusters, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. No, I think I, I do. I think I have them separate and together. I don't remember. I don't know if I have all the, both the the copies. I 
if they made it recently, I probably have it, but I don't remember. Still was fun. Though uh, similar, I, not similar, but just interesting. And then I'll ask Steve how he's doing. Um, Mank, by the time people are listening to this, I'll have seen it, but shush, because there's an embargo. Um, apparently, um, was it Vulture did a recent piece on it where they, you know, Mark Harris has seen it and did a long interview with Fincher. And there's changeovers digitally placed into the uh, film, which I think is kind of cool. It'll be a lot of people's first exposure to it come when it drops on Netflix at the end of the year. Dad, quick, why are there cigarette burns on the Netflix? It's not even Fincher's first time putting cigarette burns into a movie because they're in Fight Club That's as right. well. This yeah. But I doubt there'll be a, a penis in, in Mank. Though maybe. Who knows? We can only hope. Yeah. I mean, it would Mank's be... a crank. There we go. That's the uh, the porn parody is writing itself. Steve, how are you? I, I've been better. Oh, um, you're a Dodger fan. I'm a Dodger fan, yes. Last night was as painful as it comes. Otherwise, I'm doing okay. We're recording this the uh, morning after Game 4, which to people who are Met fans like myself comes as like, oh, so you watched a baseball game on a Saturday. Yeah, well, it, you know, being that this is their third time trying and I'm starting to lose faith. I understand the pain of the Mets fans. We just do it in the postseason. Yeah, yeah. The, Mets, the Mets like to make it painful in the regular season and then just cut off and, and that's it. The Dodgers like to extend that pain into the post, give you belief that they're going to bring home the championship and then they uh, stop on those dreams. As uh, as uh, Red once said, every man has his breaking point. So uh, before last, we get last night, might have been mine. Yeah, well, we still got a couple games left. Uh, we, on the other hand, have some questions that I'd like to uh, read off. Robert asked us if Day Lewis was nominated in supporting for gangs. Do you think he would have won? Yes, uh, which which is why I'm glad he wasn't. What was his competition that year? So the uh, the Oscar in supporting went to Chris Cooper for adaptation. So that probably would have been an unfair fight. Um, Walken was up for Catch Me If You Can, Ed Harris for The Hours, John C. Riley for Chicago, and Paul Newman for Road to Perdition. So Walken probably isn't a nominee, and Cooper doesn't have an Oscar. That's the that's the world you live in with that. Right. Yeah, I think if he had been part of that category, he would have won because that's probably the showiest performance out of those. Yeah, I mean, he did. I, I do prefer him to Adrian Brody, but I don't feel the need to give him another one at the expense of someone who has one. The only thing that would make me wish this was somewhat of reality is the extra nominee and actor would have been from pretty good stock. You know, probably not DiCaprio for Catch Me If You Can, but Richard Gere for Chicago, Sandler for Punch Drunk Love, Hugh Grant about a boy. Like, there's the people who missed would good yeah you you know what i i would and i realize that this this is just sort of a personal feeling but i i if if like gangs of new york had come out in 2012 they almost certainly would have gone for that and it would have or or you know 2022 um and generally and i'm not saying this needs to be a rule or a or a an ironclad thing just generally speaking the spirit of those supporting categories should generally bias toward people who have made their careers off of those kinds of roles. Yeah. I generally don't really like seeing people like George Clooney and Brad Pitt win those awards 
I'm happier when I see people, you know, th- that award is meant for the Jeffrey Wrights and the Ben Mendelsons and the mm. J.K. Simmonses of the world. The yes. people who always do those really um, small but sturdy, you know, secondary roles. And I don't know what personal opinions are of, you know, Chris Cooper's work in adaptation specifically. But no matter what you think about that specific performance, Chris Cooper is exactly the kind of actor that award was meant to honor. Like okay. he is a consummate supporting actor. And, and everything I'm saying also applies to supporting actors. I don't really like seeing movie stars like Anne Hathaway win that award. I like seeing people like, you know, Octavia Spencer win it instead. Those kinds of actresses who are always in smaller roles. Um, and this isn't even touching on category fraud, which is a completely different issue that I'm not going to get into today. But um, just in general, I, I think that we we should try to not encourage movie stars to 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 go into to like compete there because that's not really a movie an award for movie stars. And and we already have such a do such a bad job at recognizing those small supporting actors. I still look back at Chris Cooper's win that year, and it just it's one of the really inspiring wins for for kind of a small guy kind of actor like him. So if Daniel Day Lewis enters the race, does he pull enough votes to take Cooper out? Yeah, and does somebody I, he, slip in he, there or how does that work? yeah, he he would have won. He would have won, and which is why I'm glad he didn't get nominated for the okay. same reason that I'm really glad that um uh, they didn't. I know that there were a lot of pundits who were just so shocked and puzzled and didn't know why uh, Olivia Coleman didn't uh, try for supporting actress because she totally would have. I I was all say, for that. We just shouldn't be encouraging supporting actor and supporting actress should not be considered easy mode yeah. competition categories. That's not what they're designed to do, um, and we should generally speaking, not encourage stars to like look to that as a consolation prize, but rather make room for those. I mean, there's a reason why, for example, Steve Buscemi's never been honored. It's because we keep forgetting people like him in favor of consolation prizes for movie stars. And and it's that's disappointing. Yeah, it's a it's an offshoot of the evolution of the Oscar race into almost a political race. So it hap- it did happen. Like you can go back and see examples of, uh, you know, an A-lister or whatever you would call it at the time, like winning and sporting, but they were for a supporting role and it was, you know, it was just like, oh, okay. And it did sometimes feel weird. And and that's not to say that, you know, like Tom Cruise and Magnolia, if he had won, it wouldn't have been like, oh God, he, he's a, you know, a movie star who won sporting because it's, it's sort of designed that way. It's more, at least the way I, I feel about it. I, I don't mind those because, you you win for the role you were given like that's you made a choice to make that make that movie it's more when it could go either way like if daniel day lewis had been supporting that's a like if you want to get into the category fraud argument that's a hit or miss one you know different people will feel different about that and we're never going to agree but yeah there is a weird feeling if you had had to like harvey weinstein like the best supporting actor about that because you then you it just leaves a weird taste. And like, and then he loses his own nominees. And this is a thing that happened like for years and years. But you look at who was in that supporting category and and they were largely supporting actors like John C. Riley and Ed Harris and Chris Cooper. Like those are more traditional character actors. And it's, they don't 
translate into best actor in the same way that uh, a Brad Pitt can get into supporting actor a lot easier. You know, you don't see those guys in Lee. Like uh, Richard Jenkins getting in for The Visitor was somewhat of a bigger deal just because he he fits into that. Oh, you'll get a you'll get a supporting nomination one day and then you'll be in the club and, and we'll, we'll like you. So I yeah, I I, I agree. Um, I do also wonder what would have happened if that had happened because the conventional wisdom is that he was second in actor. So if you lose all of his votes, how do they split? Like, does Nicholson come up the middle and win that Oscar now? Oh, I don't think so. I, I think that was Adrian Brody's to lose. Um, that's, a, that's a role that when actors get put through a, a physical gauntlet like that and the camera is always on them, because that's one of those roles where you just you never leave his side. I, I think he had that pretty well wrapped up. Probably. I mean, the race was close and it was a, considered a surprise when he won. But, yeah, I, I I don't think the you know, if he won in a close, close race, I don't think the majority of votes that would be taken away from Daniel Day Lewis would go to one person. They might right. go to him, but I think you then get more Nicholson votes, you get more cage votes, and then you're probably in the same spot. And Michael Caine's in fifth. So so it's been 18 years since then. And uh, John C. Riley, I think that's his last nomination, right? I think it's his that's, only nomination. His only, that's his only one. Do you see him ever being back up there and being in the, in the nominees, or even at the podium someday winning? I mean, if he stops making Adult Swim stuff, maybe. Well, here's the thing. In terms of pure odds if i if i had to go just by pure probability the answer is no because I, i'm not going to get the numbers exactly right but it's uh, it's something like two-thirds of all academy award nominees in those acting categories never get nominated again mm-hmm. so if i just had to play the odds i would say um no he won't uh, then again, I say this with the knowledge that sometimes multiple nominees come from weird places and people who you assume are multiple nominees aren't. Like I always thought, well, that's what I was really excited that uh, when Jackie Weaver got recognized for Animal Kingdom, because I just assumed this is the only time they're ever going to recognize her. This was her yeah. only shot. She's never going to be nominated again. And then two years later, she got in for a second time. Whereas if you take, you know, one of the most ubiquitous movie stars of the last 30 years, Samuel L. Jackson, I, I think you would just assume, well, obviously he's, he had to have been invited back at some point. Nope. Pulp Fiction was it. That has so far been his first and last time up for an award. So you never really know who gets a second shot at it and who mm-hmm. never gets a shot. But again, just based on just pure playing the numbers probability – you get nominated once, you probably aren't going to be back again. This is right. very true. And the other you know thing, what? too, is it does, at the end of the day, depend on the movie. Like, if it, yep. he ends up doing a movie that's something that they can't ignore, mm-hmm. I think, ultimately, people end up focusing on that more than, can we find an excuse to nominate John C. Riley? Like, yeah. for example, if Stan and Ollie, for example, had been a better movie, who's to say he couldn't have gotten nominated for that? Or the Sisters Brothers, or whatever else, like... Obviously, that didn't happen, but I feel like he mixes it up enough that he could almost by accident find himself in something that has enough awards attention that that could spread out to him. And he is, sure. you know, he's he's definitely a well-liked um, 
sort of, you know, working character actor. Um, and I, I think none of us would argue that he doesn't have the talent to be nominated. Uh, so it's really just a matter of sort of what project he finds himself attached to that might have those extra legs. It's cute that you think talent's what gets people nominated. <laughs> <laughs> um, interestingly, to, to our point of uh, Robert saying that uh, Brody probably had in the bag, he did not really win anything in the lead up to the Oscars. Glo- um, I didn't check Globe because I don't care. But the two that matter, SAG and BAFTA, both went to Daniel Day-Lewis. And ironically, both of them went to Walton. So neither of the winners went in with the normal ammunition. Yeah, but I I think that matters way more now than it did back then. I see what you're saying. I'm not saying – obviously, if they had swept those, they they would have been more sure bets. But I think people might be – if we were to go into a time machine – to and and bring a modern Oscar watcher back to the nine, even the nineties, or even just the you know the the beginning of the aughts. I think they'd be shocked at how unique and interesting and off the beaten path some of these precursors were. Instead of now, where they just say the same names in lockstep every single time, because now they just all want to predict the Oscars instead of do their own thing. I mean, they, yeah. they the group think is absolutely unprecedented in just the last few years. Um, it's it's interesting, too, because I, I you know, went from observing it to covering it to now sort of being a part of it by being in Critics' Choice. And you listen to, you know, you obviously don't know every voter. That's impossible. But you talk to various members of the Academy. You talk to a handful of Critics' Choice members. You, you know, you, you, you compare what you like and what you're you know, planning to vote for. And they always sound more eclectic than they end up being. So there is this silent majority of very like bland voters and no disrespect, like like what you like. But I, I'm always stunned when like I'll be at an event and talk to everyone. And last year it was, you know, everyone thought Joaquin Phoenix was good and Joker, but nobody was giving him an award. And then he's up accepting the award on Oscar night and at Critics' Choice, like somewhere in the other 200 people, it's like, oh, he's winning everything good enough. And that's that's just not fun to me. Like, I right. also don't I also don't like throwing away my vote, but I, I don't understand the like, well, he's winning. So good enough. It's a weird. Yeah, place. it's just a weird way to, like, cast your ballot. It's the equivalent of like, oh, I'm a Republican and I'm going to vote for Trump, but he's losing. So fuck it. I'll vote for Biden. Like, I'll, I'm happy you voted that way. But like your logic confuses me, you know, just like giving up and going with the tide. Just so you know, the uh, John C. Riley uh, chances at nominations look pretty good for the future because he has Super Mario Baby coming out next year. So, oh great! Right, yeah. So, <laughs> so that 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 second nod looks like a, a given. Well, it depends on how he campaigns. Well, and, and wait, Super Mario what not that a an animated movie? I thought Illumination had snapped up the rights to that one. It probably is. So actually, they, you never know. Did he produce it? We might be able to get him in. Uh, maybe, but oh dear, I, I keep remembering that Illumination got it, and I just I'm very I know upset about they're that. gonna like they're gonna try and make like the Goombas the next Minions, and I just I just would just rather watch anything else when I think about that. Yeah, they're when you know the tragedy is it's gonna make a lot of money regardless. So Nintendo's oh, gonna be like, oh okay, that's the way we should make our movies, and we're all here yeah. like, no, don't do it like that. Yeah, they're they're a weird bunch. I, I 
feel very indifferent about most of their output, but they all make a billion dollars. So someone knows what they're doing. And I think the answer is like kids like them because they like, you know, if you just pull up Illumination movies, the posters are very similar. You know, the character design is kind of similar. Like there's they're kind of like created in a lab like movies that a, you know, a seven year old will watch 17 times. And they don't. The problem is just they don't have the personality for for me to watch like they, they're nicely animated and the voice work is fine. Like technically they're, they're decently well done, but you know, like the ones that I, I enjoyed like the secret rife of pets was just cause it was a, a weird enough topic that I, I got a little bit of a kick out of it. And then they immediately sequelized it and it sucked, you know, like their, their Dr. Seuss stuff is middling. Like the best, the most interesting part of well Grinch was when he wasn't the mean Grinch at the end. Like there was a little bit of like, character work there but that's not it's just not their focus like i guess it's hard to make that movie when you know you're you know potentially making a billion dollars for someone right well they tend to play it safe they they don't have the same like spark or or you know you know inventiveness that like the best pixar or even dreamworks movies have they they feel very factory line produced there's not much to chew on that much substance there right you watch it level you finish it yeah it's like credit start rolling and you forgot what you watched it does seem like there's very um, specific boxes that we have our animation in now. You know, you have your Pixar movie, and that's supposed to be your your somewhat headier but still mainstream entertainment that everyone you know kind of goes for. Disney is somewhat of an X factor. I guess they own Pixar, but they have like their alternative. Like it's weird. It's very weird when you have them like in the same race, and you're like, well, what do you actually want to win? And then you have your DreamWorks and your Illumination, and then they all are checking their like audience-friendly boxes. And then on the other side of the spectrum, you have like the cheap kid stuff. That's supposed, to, you know, if, if you went to like the cinephiles of the world, are the preferred movies each year over over the the Pixar efforts, at least a handful of years. And now you have um, Netflix getting mm-hmm. into the fray, and their and their stuff seems to not have a defined um, like angle yet. Like uh, over the moon feels closer to like trying to do a Pixar movie. But I lost my body is more of a, like a G Kids movie, but Klaus is more of like a DreamWorks movie. They they don't have a like a brand yet, which I I find kind of interesting. Like the Willoughby's earlier this year, like whether you end up liking them or not, they're they're kind of unique. Well, and also the Netflix stuff is kind of a 50-50 split between stuff they make in house and stuff they just acquire after exactly. it's already been made. So they they're still figuring out, I think, their angle, you know, because I think they, you know, want to buy an Oscar, which whatever we know that about them. That's fine. That's their that's their game. But uh, but yeah, the, the different tacks that they take to do are kind of interesting. Like, oh, we're going to we're going to try to do Klaus. We're also going to try to do I lost my body. And those are miles apart in terms of what they're trying to do and what they're, you know, arguably successful at doing. Which Then you uh, have films like Kubo and the Two Strings. Yeah. And right, which deserve to win, but always get buried. Yeah. I mean, we're going to see what this year because of the... It's not a bad category. It's not one of the ones that really suffered as much, but seems very top-heavy. So the we the hope is you don't get a second tier. Like, you know, I, I haven't seen The Croods 2, but, you know, that that doesn't usurp a spot from something more interesting, whether that's... uh you know, 
the wolf walkers or something, you know, in between that we just haven't seen yet. You do hope that's not the case, but you never know. They're usually good about throwing in at least one or two obscure ones. Like I feel like every year I see the lineup and there's at least one that I'm like, what was that again? The secret life of Kells or something that's a little off the beaten path. So you looking at your predictions, your top five is Crudes, Wolf Walkers, Onward, Over the Moon and Soul. Yeah, that seems about right right now. Yeah, once you go beyond there, even the Croods, I'm surprised well, they're up I that mean, high. the first one was nominated, so when oh, in doubt. Because otherwise you have, like, Connected and, uh, you know, whatever else ends up being. That's one of those ones where you get the list. You get the long list that it'll be easier to be like, oh, okay, here's where you're at. Because, um, like, the, the more indie stuff, Wolfwalker's the only one that has, like, a push at the moment. Have you seen that? I have. It is a uh, very nice to look at. I it's it's good. It's just I was a little bored. It's a it's a it's not a, a show your kids like everyone. Your new Halloween costume is wolf walkers. Much more of like an Irish um, fairy tale, like family friendly, but aiming at a slightly mature, more mature audience. Similar to Kells. Yeah, that same filmmakers, I believe. Oh, is it okay? Yeah, it looks like it. I enjoyed that. Too. Yeah. Speaking of yeah. I mean, coming soon to interview with those directors, but uh, they, uh, yeah, they, they, what they're doing, they're doing well. And speaking of animation, we have a question from Ryan McDermott. In honor of Over the Moon, what are some animated films that you consider being slash having been deserving of Oscar consideration outside of just animated feature? I, I mean, hey, if we're to go into a time machine back to 2002, I would have loaded spirited away with all sorts of recognition mm. um I, I still just what 18 years later that movie still just gets me uh i i love it so much uh i would throw out um i believe 2015 anomalies for uh screenplay i uh i love 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 that movie i know it didn't hit with everyone but that's one of those ones where I think there's no question it deserves consideration elsewhere. Like they all do in multiple categories. But I think a lot of times you have a movie that you enjoy that beyond, you know, score and song, you you just you never think about it except for, you know, like Toy Story. Toy Story seems to get the like original screenplay, adapted screenplay, like attention. But elsewhere, you don't really pay attention. But Anomaly, so it would have been one for me. Yeah, but you see that that always bugs me because when when they're only recognized for sound and song and musical score because that tells me that even people in hollywood don't understand the demands and craftsmanship that goes into animated films um you know it's why i was kind of stunned and shocked in, in a really good way when Kubo got nominated yeah. for visual effects, because that right, tells me right. they clearly, they clearly, there were at least some people in that in that group, in those people who vote on that eligibility, who understand that there are visual effects that go into animated films. There are. Um, I read a fantastic article uh, right around the time this movie. Speaking of another movie that deserved way more um, recognition than just animated feature with the editor of Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. 
Oh, and sure. I think that that's another example of, I mean, animated films have editors and they don't do what live action feature editors do, but they still have a job. Same mm-hmm. thing with you have cinematographers who uh, advise on the lighting and how to have the lighting look realistic in, a, in an animated film. And I just over and or um, uh, there are art directors I mean, the, the, someone had to invent the technology deep canvas so that when Tarzan swings through and surfs on the tree branches, it actually looks like he's surfing on 3D painted tree branches. Well, that was the art director who created the technology for that. And the fact that they rarely get recognized, it tells me that even in the industry, Animated craftsmen just don't, people just don't understand the work that goes into that. And it's a real shame. Uh, well, with Kubo, they, they did something really smart during the closing credits. They showed you some of the behind the scenes magic. And I thought that was in- incredible because you don't, you don't realize what goes into just one of those scenes. Um, right. right. I forgot what the creature was that they created. It was this uh, giant skeleton. He's like the biggest stop motion puppet that's ever been created or something like that. The way they did it was just insane. And giving, having that right there in the credits, maybe, you know, earn them that nod uh, Uh, because you don't have to go hunting it down. It was there for you to see. And it was, it was captivating. Well, what you see is a lot of times you don't see an effort being made and, and granted there shouldn't have to be, you should be able to present your work and have it be judged, you know, fairly and equally. But, there is a difference when you see like Into the Spider-Verse do an awards campaign that includes like these academy screenings that are that are usually reserved for, you know, your 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 vices and your, you know, your your traditional Oscar fair. Like, oh, you know, the Oscar voter goes to see this because they know this is like one of the Oscar movies. So when you get the invite for Into the Spider-Verse, I think there's some initial hesitancy sometimes of, well, are they going to come? Or are they going to think we're trying to push something on them? that they don't normally go for, which you, you obviously you need to do, but becomes an issue. Like you see um, last year, was it last year I think Missing Link was campaigned a lot on his art and on the idea of like art direction and design of the, of the look of the film. And it didn't really pull, pull, um, pay off, but you're starting to see more campaigns. Think about, you know, the animation getting the sort of 50 state strategy to use the point political parlance my choice would be uh you stole it with uh spider-verse i was so happy to see it win but it it could have been in best picture for me it was one of my top maybe my top of the year um but if you want to go to another film i I go back to lord and miller and the lego movie Um, oh my god that's one of the biggest snubs in oscar history yeah Yeah. beyond just animated you know it could have been there for for song for sure and uh and screenplay yeah, definitely. Yeah, I, I that movie missing is the say is the reason why you will always be fearful of something missing. Like Into the Spider Verse, by all rights, was the unequivocal frontrunner and slam dunk winner since the day it debuted. But up until nomination morning, there's still that like, is it going to miss? Mm-hmm. Is it going to miss? Yeah. And then it doesn't. You're like, okay, I think we can breathe a, a sigh of relief. But they uh, animation is in the same way that documentary. Not so much foreign feature, but uh, they they create this very small bubble of what's going to get nominated, and then it sometimes backfires in that voters 
will will go look for other things, but then they'll neglect the wrong thing. Like they'll they'll not get rid of the crudes, you know, but they'll get rid of a a Lego movie. I don't, I don't think they're about the same year, but my point is fair, I suppose. Right. When you also have to wonder um, if Spider-Verse had come out just a few years earlier, would they have, you know, no matter how much of a masterpiece it is, would they have wanted the stigma of, oh, we nominated a, a superhero movie? Like if Black Panther hadn't been nominated for Best Picture just one year earlier, would it have uh, been given that fair consideration? Oh, oh, oh no, that, that was the same year. They was that the same year? The oh, same well, then, year, yeah. Then I guess they were being open minded all over the place. Let me double check. I think he's right. But yeah, I, I yeah. um I'm I'm of the opinion that and I, I interact with them more than than I used to, but you have to kind of drag them across the finish line when it comes to like a new thing. Because you'll get the oh, that's not what we do, and they just won't consider it. Doesn't mean they don't like it. Like you get plenty of times people are like, oh, I love that movie, but it never, you know, sprawls out to the larger body. So Sometimes that's a matter of there needs to be a campaign. Like that's what a campaign like should do. Like uh, you can make the argument that, you know, let's just, we'll use like the trial of Chicago seven for this year. Like you don't need to campaign that movie necessarily. Like voters will watch it. Voters will vote for it. It's yeah. their type of movie. It's like, it's, it doesn't need the extra push. You can make the extra push. That's just the nature of the game now, but it, it, it has almost the, the layer of like an incumbency. Whereas, a couple of years ago, a quiet place would have 100 percent been shut out if it didn't get the the screenings and like, oh, we're we're campaigning for you for sound and for Emily Blunt and for screenplay. Like those are things that, you know, the the majority of voters would never have given a second thought to. So you need to to put it on the radar. Copyright. Um, and uh, and convince people, though, this is, this is prestige, you know, because yeah. they they get they check their boxes. And I mean, listen, we're talking about a group of people who thought that Bohemian Rhapsody was the best edited movie of the year. Right. Ugh. Yeah. I mean, I, 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 to me, a more recent example that really, really sealed it for me was when um, uh, Bombshell got nominations, a movie that nobody seemed to really like that bombed at the box office. It nobody saw it. So it tanked at the box office. Didn't get good reviews. No one seemed to really have much um, uh, enthusiasm for it. But it got acting nominations anyway. And I think it was pretty much guaranteed to get those acting nominations because as soon as those production stills came out, people said, oh, wow, Charlie's Theron looks just like Megyn Kelly. What a great performance. And that, that, that just always just stuck. Um, yeah, I mean, that, that, mm -hmm. does, that does happen. I, I, yeah. I like the movie a little bit better than the average person. But but you would agree but that, agree that like, regardless of your opinion of it, that was a movie nobody watched. Yeah, relatively. Yeah, no, speaking. it didn't. I, there's a there's a. It's not. It's an exaggeration, but it's not that much. That, that probably more people saw it at award screens and bought tickets to see it. Yeah, um, it's that sort of you know the that that played a very, very specific angle, which is production stills released to put it on your copyright. Um, sorry, I won't do that anymore. But like. As soon as it is a thing, it becomes predicted. And that's the, the nature of predictions. Like, it's it, it's a thing, and it's an unknown quantity. And then it screens to just enough people who are going the line. So the Academy then hears it's good. Then you have your Academy screening early, 
and then you don't necessarily show it them for a while, and then you remind them when voting is going on. Oh, hey, you like this movie, mm-hmm. so you kind of skip over that. Yep. You know, beyond the you know beyond the like deadline article or whatever they at the first Academy screening going. It's amazing. You know, you don't necessarily need to read the press where everyone else goes. Uh, I liked it. It's fine. But here's the thing. I didn't like it about it or I didn't like it or I hated it. But she's good. But I didn't care about this performance. You know, you the more mixed message you don't hear. That was Vice. That was Vice also. I was just about to say Vice is like the exact same situation. Yeah. And it's a it's a way that you can campaign. It's a it's a way that people go about this now when you sometimes, I guess, knowing have a project that's going to be divisive by nature and you need to figure out a way to sell it or sometimes you you think you're going to capture the wave you don't capture the wave but you can kind of manufacture the same results kind of the opposite of, of parasite where you 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 have to wait for the wave to form and then you try you know okay people like this movie can we get more people to see it okay we can get more people to see it can we get people to vote for it a little bit more they can all right can they vote for it to win oh they can and you kind of naturally ride it out and push it as opposed to kind of dragging people that that doesn't usually work out for wins. And then the ending of Ryan's question is a, is a film a Hawk face off. Uh, start with Klaus or over the moon. I've actually hmm. not seen either of them. <laughs> there. That says something. Um, You know, I got to tell you, I uh, I imagine having only seen one of them, I I, the bar's gonna be would be pretty low for me to not consider Over the Moon the superior one because I wasn't I didn't quite get the big deal with Klaus. Yeah, I don't know. Can anyone agree with me on that? I was sitting there trying to think I should like this, right? I should love it. Because it's everyone tells me it's so heartwarming, and they cried during it, and I just didn't like it. So hopefully someone else can back me up on that. Or yeah, that, that's alone? the same same reaction I had. I left fairly indifferent. Yeah, um, I, I feel like I may have to go back. Maybe it was the stress of the season or or something that day. But I'll be watching it again this year, and and hopefully I have more of a reaction to it. But uh, over the moon, I thought did some fantastic stuff. The songs were wonderful. The book ending. Uh, opening sequence and the in the closing 20 minutes or so when they're back on uh, on earth spoilers sorry are beautiful aesthetically and 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 the story and the 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 human story going on there the family absolutely loved it the middle i thought some of the animation looked unfinished um very flat just not my style and that might be me personally uh, just my my taste but i didn't care for that there's some great moments in there. There's a, a ping pong scene that's fantastic. The introduction of, of the moon goddess is another uh, highlight. But in between there, it was, uh, it was just this pointless task of running around, meeting silly characters, and waiting to get back to Earth. But yeah. still, I really enjoyed it. I just wish they found a way to inject some of the heart from the rest of it into the middle because I think it would be a, a true classic. Yeah, agreed. Also, pick over the moon. But yeah, both of you are right about class being a low bar and over the moon being not perfect, but pretty good. Uh, next one, Beauty and the Beast or Aladdin? Oh, Beauty and the Beast. Sorry, Aladdin. Yeah, I'm going to go with Aladdin. I, 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 
They're so close. Um, I have a better time with Aladdin. Beauty and the Beast, I think, is the better achievement. So I'll, I'll say Beauty and the Beast just so we have a tie. If Aladdin came first, would it be the better achievement? Uh, no. No. It's the more, so it's the more fun movie. It has the more iconic part to it. If you were picking like one thing to watch, I would probably watch Robin Williams as the genie over um, the Beauty and the Beast sequence from Beauty and the Beast. But both their highlights are very high. They don't really have lows. Aladdin just is a more traditional, like the narrative isn't um, too spectacular. Like it's still, it's great. And like as a kid, you watch it, you're thrilled. But, you know, you revisiting them both now, I have a better time with Aladdin but I watch it for Robin Williams watching Beauty and the Beast. You still kind of appreciate it as art. Right. Well, and that's the thing. I I think people tend to forget. And I do too. I remember fondly thinking of uh, Aladdin. My memory works the same way. People tend to forget kind of how dull the, the movie is until the genie shows up. Like, the genie shows up, and the movie improves across the board. Not just because of Robin Williams, but just that the whole movie seems to pick up steam and gets more engaging. But those for that introductory section before he comes out of the lamp, is it's, it's not great. And, oh, by the way, there's one other reason I think Beauty and the Beast tops um, uh, Aladdin. And that's because uh, Howard Ashman did all the lyrics to yeah. the songs. And that's why the, the lyrics just, just flow beautifully with the songs. Whereas most of the lyrics to Aladdin songs were written by Tim Rice, who is terrible. <laughs> See, I, I disagree though. I, I think the beginning of Aladdin's great. And I think it, it goes from eight to 10, maybe even with Robin Williams, maybe even 11. But um, we're Beauty and the Beast, I think starts great with the song with her walking around the small town. But there's times when she's in the castle that, you know, in between the big songs and the be our guests and all that, that kind of uh, slow down. And I don't know, I think it loses its energy in the middle where I think Aladdin starts off pretty high and then really uh, ramps it up and then stays there right to the end. Yeah, I would have to echo that for sure. Um, I think, I, I think beauty and the beast is sort of, an achievement, especially for the time. I think it's a beautiful movie. I think it definitely, they both hold up. They're both great movies. We're, t- we're talking about degrees of greatness here. Yeah. Yeah, um, but I do just find Aladdin, I think, more entertaining throughout. Um, I mean, the Robin Williams stuff, but I think the rest of it is just as good. I think Jafar is one of the great Disney villains. I think all the songs are bangers. Uh, whereas Beauty and the Beast, I agree with Steve, I think it does have some, some dry spells before it gets back to the good stuff. Oh wait, hey, hang about. on. Just just to clarify, are, are we talking about the animated or live action? Because because uh, yeah. there's more of a consensus if we're talking about the live action ones. They both belong in the trash. Yes, <laughs> which I was about to say. That was he. He stole my mark. But uh, the thing that I think also makes you appreciate both of them more is to watch the live action to see how to see how much fail. worse they can oh, be. Yeah. yeah. So like, um, I, I didn't notice. I still I don't notice as much the uh, the lower. The, the lower level of Aladdin in the animated version. It definitely soars when Robin Williams is there, but to watch the live action version and not have that elevation, you have, you know, you have Will Smith doing like something and it's fine, but you go, Oh, I'm I'm stuck with the story now. And that's not the best part of this, this production. And with Beauty and the Beast, 
it still looked beautiful, you know, but you're looking at more of a, this is crazy to say because there's actual people in it as opposed to cartoons, but an artificiality of, okay, this was made in a lab to look right. beautiful. And it has achieved that, but I, it's the same issue I had with the uh, apes, most recent apes movies. They're absolutely, but for some reason, that particular effect of Caesar and the apes, I always am looking at as ones and zeros. Like I, I can't, I don't end up thinking of them as characters. And that's why I think I always liked those movies, but didn't love them. And you watch the Beauty and the Beast live action and it's positively stunning. But you never don't realize like, oh, this is this is a computer generated image. This is the same thing as the cartoon, but meant to look real. And the Uncanny Valley is is steep. Yeah, I mean, they're both undeniably a step down, although I would say even if we were talking about the live action ones, I'd still give it to Aladdin because Beauty and the Beast for the vast majority of it feels like it is directly copy pasting everything the animated did. I mean, that opening uh, song in the village is like beat for beat, the exact same thing. Mm -hmm. Um, Whereas with Aladdin, it's got a lot of that too, but at least it's trying to do original stuff. There's that whole middle section where Will Smith is basically doing Arabian hitch and trying to get um, Aladdin and Jasmine to fall together in the palace. That's completely invented for the movie. And that I think is the best part of the movie. So that alone, I think elevates it above beauty and the, Beast, which is the only thing they add is like these weird PTSD backstories for Belle and the Beast that nobody asked for. Yeah. Oh man, you guys are so much kinder to both of them than I would be. <laughs> I hated both of them so much. Oh, I didn't like yeah, you. I, I'm more. They're huge. They're both huge steps down. Don't get me wrong, but if we're talking about here, we're talking about degrees of shit. Yeah. You know what it is? It's like it's like sitting down with some old friends and realizing that you don't love them as much as you used to. But the animated versions are still there, and the, we still have those to love. But those live right. action, I'm not revisiting those ever again. Um, right. Oh yeah, you would you would never choose to watch the live action one over yeah. the animated version. It just when wouldn't I, happen. When I have grandchildren, they'll be watching the animated ones for sure. You know, the live action. The, I'm sure they'll tell me about it. Grandpa, did you see this? And I will then tell them it's trash and get out of my face. Do you really think that uh, entertainment will be allowed under the Baron Trump administration? <laughs> oh, please. Sorry, couldn't yeah. resist. Um, and the last one is Pocahontas or Tarzan? Tarzan. Oh, Tarzan. No contest, Tarzan. See, I mean, deep, deep Canvas alone puts Tarzan above Pocahontas. Yeah, um, so Tarzan is the achievement. Pocahontas is the movie I think I would more enjoy watching just because I have more of a history with it. I think I've only seen Tarzan once. But it is undeniable that what Tarzan contributed to animation is is heads and tails above Pocahontas being like the, the to some people I think it was also like the turning point of like oh I guess this like second golden age is over for Disney like they're making good stuff but yeah. we're not, not uh, we're not here to expect best picture potential anymore like Beauty and the Beast was sort of a one off. What about the music alone? Uh, I would say the Phil Collins soundtrack in Tarzan is one of the best that Disney ever produced. Yeah, it's I'm I mean, not I'm not super into the Phil Collins songs. I mean, the big the big, big one, lot, the big uh, lyric that's so that that everyone remembers is put your faith in what you most believe in, which is just really clunky songwriting. But even with that, I would prefer it to Pocahontas's songs. Yeah, I mean, I think it's one of those, it's one of those ones that if I went back and watched both right now, like if I just paused and came back in three hours, 
I would be on board with Tarzan 100%. But as a, as a kid, I think I enjoyed Pocahontas more. And that's just sort of the nature of watching those things at that age. I think they're, they're meant to capture you at that age. And, you know, some of them work still. Like, I, I will always enjoy I always enjoy Beauty and the Beast. I always enjoy Aladdin. But some of these second-tier ones, when you revisit them with fresh eyes, you, 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 you notice the, 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 the chinks in the armor a little bit more. And that's mm-hmm. never a pleasant experience. Um, speaking of unpleasant experiences, um, we can all feel good about ourselves that we're not Rudy Giuliani. No, yeah. <laughs> I feel good about that every day. Yeah, I'm not. Yeah. Although, although, okay. Whenever now, this tweet was deleted really fast, so not everyone saw it. But did you guys see the the screenshotted deleted tweet of the president defending Giuliani? Oh no. Uh, He. I don't know. I know he said something about Sasha Baron Cohen. I don't remember. He. he wrote a a tweet, and then I guess his lawyers told him to delete it, so he did. But um, he wrote a very hysterical defense of him, uh, where he goes, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to use his voice, I'm just going to, because I always think it's funnier if you read it in a normal voice, just to really hammer home how crazy it sounds. Yeah. Washed up Hollywood nobodies tried to trick America's great mayor, Rudy, but failed and failed is in all caps he was with he was with a woman parentheses young and tucking in his shirt which i have done many times don't listen to the fake news it was a tuck oh i did see that tweet yes that's not a good angle (laughs) it was a tuck and i and as soon as i read that i thought you know this would have been a perfect episode of of seinfeld where maybe George Costanza tries to do the same thing and gets caught. And he spends the rest of the episode telling his friends, it was a tuck, Jerry! It was a tuck! <laughs> the irony is, if this was an episode on the new season of Curb Your Enthusiasm, where Borat, like, got Larry David to, like, look like he was doing that, yeah, it would come off as, like, they they reached a little bit this season. Like, this this isn't uh, right. this is pushing the limits of credulity. Um, but... I, I, I do credit them for leaving it as a surprise because I, I do recall Rudy claiming like I try someone tried to trick me, but I'm too smart for them, you know, months and months ago. I must have assumed it was for uh, who is America. And I'm I watched the, the film, which is now out. I, I'd seen it. So the film came out on Wednesday of, of last week. Right. So I saw it. No, it came out on Thursday. The embargo lifted on Wednesday. I saw it on Monday, I think. And, you know, watching it and and then when that pops up, your brain starts to go, oh, I think I heard something about it. And when you watch the scene, not knowing it's coming, you're going, oh, oh my God, like even <laughs> even if you you take his side and he was just tucking his pants, like, do you not have any self-awareness to not put your hands in your pants in front of a person and also cameras like it's it's a body it's a the laying down in the bed the that's the awkward going in the bedroom at all then laying down it's like come on dude i mean i i don't think it's that innocent i think even if you talking but i think it's i think yeah i mean only a talk is is even even if you 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 give him every benefit of the doubt and you accuse the borat filmmakers of every, every trick that he gave his phone number at a different point, all those like individual elements, 
you know, can be rearranged to be better or worse for someone. They're still not good elements. That's mm-hmm. like that's like talking about when you used a racial slur. It doesn't really matter when you said it. You did still say it. And that is that is the core of what people have a problem with, not necessarily the order in which you did things. So right. there's no good angle in which you're like, oh, never mind. Who wouldn't have had that problem? But there is definitely also the degree of like if he hadn't burst in, like how far were you willing? to go with the uh, with the lady that you thought was interested in you which is which is the bigger issue like the fact that you didn't think you were doing anything wrong well exactly so, i think sasha baron cohen himself put it best in his response where he said if he thinks that this is appropriate behavior in front of a young uh, female reporter then i shudder to think what he's doing in hotel rooms with other reporters while the, there's no cameras yeah so here's a question about uh, the film and the general reception I know I watched it and I embraced it. I was I had no issues, but I'm also I lean left. So what about people who lean right? You know the conservatives. A, do you think they'll be watching this, knowing that the whole Giuliani bit? Uh, and if they do watch it, what do you think the the reaction is going to be? Because I, I've yet to hear from anybody on the right even refer to the film. You know, like more friends and family. I did so the. Uh, the people, there's been a little bit on social media of like right wingers attacking it only after the Rudy thing, of course. Um, but mostly they're they're claiming that um, the first one was like you were laughing at Borat, not at the people. They didn't. So essentially they tacked their takings that they didn't see themselves as victims in the first one. But now they're being targeted. You know, they, it wasn't a problem that they said awful things okay. in the first one because we're laughing at the full. But here it's all about laughing at, at us. And I don't uh, I don't appreciate that, which is kind of a wild take to have about that. But, you know, when well, that tr- just suggests they didn't get the first one in the first place. Oh, no, we even I know uh, lots of people didn't get the first one. They just thought it was funny, which is fine. Like, there's nothing wrong with that. But the 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 satire of the first one, it was definitely lost on many a person who decided to gift the world with their impression of Borat. Oh. You, you, uh, but you do know the next question is that everyone has to do their best impression, right? It's written down here. Oh, oh no. No, I'm not. No. <laughs> Ryan, you can send your hate mail to Robert. He's refusing your question. My wife. There you go. Uh, Very nice. See, I'm happy to lose. So now Miles wins this contest. I knew this was coming, so I wrote down. Uh, I have nothing. I'm going to say, uh, what, what's he say? Yakshimash. Uh, hey. is- Look at my look at the Dodgers. Very nice. There you go. Oh, that was terrible. Come on, we have to delete this. No, it stays. Oh, is in. Uh, stays in. Um, this yeah, goes in right. the. This goes in the title for this episode. Listen yeah. to our bad Borat impression. <laughs> episode five, Borat's Scrum, or whatever the hell he calls it. Um, no, it's. I, I thought it was a good movie. I think not necessarily worth much attention beyond like oh borat's back but i i'm i'm certainly not not upset that you know any moment that a candidate for president of the united states is talking about the borat sequel as opposed to their candidacy is right. good for me so i'm i'm happy to distract him like my pleasure i'll i'll host a screening for him if he wants it, it is weird though how it it, it seems like we have now we're, we're at this weird sort of political moment where even his supporters kind of know he sucks as a human being. So the attempts to do so don't get any kind of reaction at all. 
other than just sort of a general kind of, you know, how all uh, fascist movements sort of cast the outgroup and the conspiracy and the Lugan press beyond that. Uh, I, I remember when uh, when I was still in high school and Fahrenheit 9-11 came out and it was a big deal. Yeah. I mean, it, it kicked off a a a raging response from Bush. I mean, because, by the way, for for those of you who are maybe young readers of Awards Radar who are maybe in high or don't have a really good memory of the Bush administration, if you guys are thinking that the worship that the Republicans have for Donald Trump is somehow strange or unusual, I can tell you it is not unprecedented. When I was in high school, and I, I went to high school in a, in a southern state, so any criticism of Bush was considered heresy. The, the worship for our 43rd president was just as strong as it is for the 45th president among his base of supporters. Um, but certainly, I think if if um, uh, a documentary filmmaker like Michael Moore, and I, I think Michael Moore is kind of way, way past his, he's kind of a, past his heyday at this point. But if someone like him wanted to come out with a, a documentary about some terrible thing he's done, I, I don't, it, it would, it would hardly be on the radar. It would just yeah. be I mean, part of just the news cycle. I mean, um, totally under control direct, came out last week. That's all yeah, about his failure on, on a giant crisis. And it, right. It was, it was a secret from like, uh, the person who did inside job, Alex by the way, me. inside yeah. job was a terrific, um, documentary for those of you who still don't understand the um, 2008 financial crisis, which is fine. I can barely understand it. And I watched the movie, but um, it's, it's, it's just an interesting time we're living in that, that a, we could come up with five different films accusing the president of all sorts of terrible things like literal war crimes, which is what Fahrenheit 9-11 did with Bush. And it just kind of is part of the news cycle now. Yeah. Oh yeah. And I mean, there is a, there's a, there's a difference, not really different, but I do notice that the, the angle being taken is different in that when, when Bush was, was sort of defended and, and worshipped, there was this angle of, but he, you know, compassionate conservatism and, you know, wartime president, these, these like buffers that you place on him to be like, oh, but, you know, he needs to be handled with kid gloves because he's, you know, he's looking out for you. Whereas now it's the cult of personality and well, you know, either if you're the the Mitch McConnell type Republican, you're he's a means to an end and I'm going to use him like a fucking parasite. Or if you are on board with the the racism and the xenophobia and all that, you 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 want the more extreme, the, the nastier he is, the more he's proving your point. And any argument is you just being having your point proven. And we just get to this that like like vileness of everything that we're at now, which is weird, why I oddly find myself watching like videos of like Joe Biden talking about his like family just as like, oh, there is a like a human being option, yeah. like which shouldn't be like that all then frustrates me that I shouldn't be like a good like I have politics like I have a very specific politics, but more than a you know, a significant chunk of why I'm voting the way I'm voting shouldn't be that one isn't evil. Right. You know, it, it never felt that way. I mean, we all said like Bush was evil and and yeah, like the war crimes thing is a big deal. But, you know, nobody doesn't look back now and go, oh, how quaint like that. We 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 looked at this as like this. Our, our doctor, no, was George W. Bush, like a a person who even now, like 
doesn't seem to like hate anyone. Like the idea of hatred is such a newfound thing for mm-hmm. the political person as opposed to the party. Like, you know, people hated Clinton. People hated, you know, every every candidate. But the idea that the the politician themselves takes like joy in that and and encourages it and takes part in it is is new. So there's there shouldn't be something so like like change the, the idea of change as a reason to vote shouldn't involve like, oh, one person seems like they'll be upset if you die. You know, yeah. you, when at Bush at, at the Trump inauguration turned to Hillary and said that was some crazy shit after his speech. And that's exactly what it is. It's like even those people who at one point may have uh, been villainized, this is a, a new level of quote unquote evil. It's, 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 uh, it's, it's scary shit. Well, I mean, Bush was himself an ineffectual Republican puppet. Mm-hmm. Cheney was testing out the guardrails of, of being in charge in a new way. But nobody else really looked at it as, oh, wait, we can we can just be try to be kings. And that's where where Trump and his people have. Yes. And like, oh, the guardrails of democracy were like someone like test, you know, the t- OK, T-Rex in Jurassic Park, putting it, putting the 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 claw on the uh, electrified fence and going, it's not electrified anymore. You know, that's that's our film comparison. But. The difference is like the guardrail for democracy is a little more serious. And um, well, that's why the can you tell we're all a little stressed out now? (laughs) Yeah. Well, that's why the cult of personality is so sort of toxic and so like in a certain way baffling to me, because like you guys have said, most elections, it's a choice between apples and oranges and you may vehemently dislike one person, but they're still playing the same game for the most part. This year, it's like apples and razor blades. Like it's so the the juxtaposition between the two is so pronounced. And the one option is just so like malicious and nasty and cruel. It's it's really kind of upsetting to look at when when you notice that people don't have a way to defend it either. Either they go they dig in deeper and say, you know, Sorry, you know, I'm sorry you feel that way. I, I, hope, I hope it burns you. I hope you're, it's burning you up inside. And, you know, that's really just disgusting anyways. Who wants that? Like, why is it the ha- or whatever portion of this country looks at us and says, you know, they want us to feel pain. Aren't we supposed to be united? Isn't that what we talk about? But it's all talk. And then you have the other ones in the middle who you feel like more complicit. Because um, they just, should know better. They, they do know better. But I know a lot of people who are right wing conservatives who just stopped talking about it. And I'm like, you can't just sit here while this is going on and be quiet. And some people say, get this politics off Facebook, get it off here. No, this is where it should be, because this affects you and everyone else on here. We shouldn't, we shouldn't ignore it and pretend that this is going away. We need to keep it in check. And Something. the scary thing is that we're not, not only are we not keeping it in check uh, from, you know, on the, on the right, we also have people who are digging in deeper and, and getting a little bit crazier by the, by the day, it seems. Something I've uh, I've thought about a little bit is because he's not a Republican, you know, he has no politics. Realistically, he just latched onto a weaker party. Mm-hmm. Like, what would have happened if the roles had been reversed? Like, I like to think that if he had been, you know, ran as a Democrat and was doing the exact same things, but with liberal policies, just like I I don't care, you know, you suck, you suck, you know, all the nonsense, but also Medicare for all. Like, I, I, I would like to think it, it just it doesn't track is the problem. But I like to think that 
as a party, they would, you know, we, and also just as like human beings would, would go like, I can't, I can't sacrifice like my, my understanding of what the world is supposed to be for this political gain. This, the, the reason it doesn't track is also like the things that you would propose if you were the crazy Democrat actually make people's lives better as opposed to just make people money. So that's, mm-hmm. that's where the other problem is. Like, I don't, I don't have those politics, so I can't be like, yeah, it's probably bad that he says that Mexicans are rapists. That's probably not a good thing. But my, my, I am getting that 1% tax hike, tax cut. So money in my pocket. Like, I, I don't know. I've never had the money to care about money. I, I think the left would, would uh, have rejected him. It doesn't matter yeah. what. I just, he doesn't fit in. There's so many things that he said and, and done that would have been exposed that would have pushed him out of uh, like you never would have gotten races. It's not never would have gotten the nomination in the first place if it was that people who support Trump uh, are like the, you know, the Academy of Country Music, who anyone who shows up, be it Jessica Simpson or the guy Hootie and the Blowfish guy, they seem to embrace them. And they just like, I don't know, it seems the bar is low and the left. You know, it's uh, this is maybe not the best metaphor, but we seem to be a little pickier. And, and have a set of standards. It leads to the, the, the old line that Democrats fall in love, Republicans fall in line. That Republicans True. get told what to do. Yeah. Okay, here's your person. Here's your uh, Trojan horse for whatever. You know, they, they accuse us of the Trojan horse of socialism, but, you know, the Trojan horse of authoritarianism and um, more. <laughs> yeah, I, it, it's bad. But yeah. um, here, we'll move on to a, uh, a different giant entity um which is the james bond franchise before we uh we wrap up i think this is kind of a cool rumor to chat about that uh mgm considered or listened to you know they'll never say who initiated but um selling no time to die to a streaming platform netflix and and apple being the two mentioned um ultimately walking at a price tag of over a half a billion dollars but i uh i you know what do people think of we almost got like the streaming bond movie like what does that say about where we're at? And also, would it have felt like a game changer in any way to you? I think it would have definitely been a game changer because I think, I mean, I feel the same way about it as I do the fact that the latest Pixar movie is going straight to Disney Plus. Like, I, I understand that, you know, times are tough and the studios have to do something. But for an institution like the James Bond series, which has been around for decades and decades and you know, they've had highs and lows, but they've kept trucking along regardless. I feel like having one, especially for Daniel Craig's final time in the role, for that to go straight to streaming, I feel like that would delegitimize, not maybe not the whole thing, but at least going forward, oh, okay, now it's okay for it to not be a cinematic experience. It's okay for you to just watch it on your TV now. And I feel like that, yeah, I feel like that would be tough to come back from whenever they inevitably reboot it. Mm. Well, and the other thing too, you're saying MGM was trying to sell this movie to a streaming platform. Um, so the wording is kind of vague. Okay. So the way I, I read that they, they there was a negotiation period at some point. Here, I'll, I'll pull up the uh, the quote so we can we can look. So according to Variety, so there's your source. Uh, Apple, Netflix, and other streaming services explored the possibility of acquiring No Time to Die, the upcoming James Bond movie been postponed, blah, blah, blah. MGM, the studio behind the film, reportedly lost between 30 and $50 million during the delays. Um, Bloomberg first reported discussions, which have been a topic in Hollywood this week. 
Um, other studios like Paramount and Sony have raked in millions of dollars with movies like Greyhound coming to America without remorse by selling them the streaming services. Well, the exhibition, the, the uh, exhibition sector continues to struggle. MGM says they don't comment on rumors here. Multiple insiders at rival studios and companies said that a possible bond sale was explored overtly and believe that MGM is at least open to the possibility of unloading their crown jewel for a princely sum. The studio was said to be looking for a deal of roughly $600 million, a price tag that was deemed too rich for two of the free spending streaming services. So that was uh, whether whether that ended up being like Michael G. Wilson and, and the Broccoli's or whoever saying putting our foot down, we're not doing it or just the price tag couldn't be met. This sounds like it was more than just like, hey, what if we what if we got Netflix? So, so here, here's my thing. Disney putting their big major blockbusters on Disney Plus, I think is a bit of a different business deal than MGM shopping around Netflix and other streamers to release James Bond on. Because Disney has a major advantage in releasing stuff like Mulan and Soul in that they own they they own 100% the platform that they're releasing their films on which i i think they've been trying to do for a while if only because i can only just sort of guess on that because of how awfully they bully um uh movie theaters and how they try to strong arm and actively screw them over i just think they they're going to be okay with this because they want Disney Plus to be their sole avenue of distribution because they get to control yeah. the access to it and they get access to all of their customer base's uh, personal data, which is something you can't get from a movie theater. MGM trying to sell it to a platform, once they sell the distribution rights to Netflix or Hulu or whatever, they, that's it. They, Hulu and Netflix can do whatever they want with the data and personal information and streaming um, data they get from that. So I think that's ultimately going to be the difference between success and failure in this post-COVID, possibly post-movie theater world, um, in that, you know, it's funny to me that James Bond is even, the next James Bond movie might be going to streaming because James Bond is always... I'm always uh, entertained by how the, the franchise has for the last several decades been trying to like latch itself on to some new trend or some new fad. Um, it, it, like if you if you go through the history of them after Sean Connery left, they all seem to be like hopping onto a trend or trying to find some way to stay relevant because let's be honest, James Bond hasn't been relevant since the 60s, but don't tell the fans that. Um, so that they're trying to do streaming, but also do it in a way that has none of the advantages of streaming and all the drawbacks. I, I think that is just, uh, that's just a perfect encapsulation of the entire franchise. <laughs> so I, I definitely agree with what you're saying as far as from a business strategy, it makes more sense uh, for Disney because they own Disney plus they, they get all the gains and none of the losses. I think for me, the difference with something like Soul going to Disney Plus, it's less about what it means for Disney and more what it means for um, audience perception of the Pixar brand in that case. Because I think Pixar's beyond its association with Disney, it does have a level of prestige to it. 
uh, that um, even the regular Disney animation stuff doesn't have because they regularly win Oscars and they're regularly beloved kind of on that different level. And I think once you start it's it's the same with if you if they finally decide to put Black Widow on Disney Plus, for example, then the MCU. It's now oh okay, and well now they're not these aren't cinematic events anymore. These are things that are that can interchangeably go to theaters or streaming depending on what the marketplace looks like. And I think it's a it's a slippery slope from that point to sort of come back from that. That said, the studio might not have any interest in coming back from that. So I guess oh. the audience is just stuck in the middle. I, I think Disney not only anticipated that, not only do I think they don't mind that, I think that even if this pandemic hadn't hit, Disney would be pushing for that anyway. At least, again, based on how they've bullied movie theaters in the past. I think they want this. This is only just speeding up what they've been planning the whole time. Now, whether the other studios are planning for this or keeping ahead, that's another story. But Disney... I, I do not ever I, – I, I will never make the mistake of underestimating the mouse again. When it comes to business and when it comes to locking in consumer bases and get it, extracting as much money as they can from that, um, I, I never underestimate the mouse. Yeah, they're they going to be totally fine if they never put a movie out in a theater again. Yeah, um, I don't think that that's their plan, but they, you know, they're happy with whatever that entails. So if right. that one meaning that you get you get the same movies you always got, you know, you get your three MCU movies, you get your Star Wars movie and they go to Disney Plus. That's fine. They'll spend the money on that. If that means they can instead make double the Mandalorian or make a Mandalorian size project as opposed to an episode 10 or whatever episode one of a new franchise for them, they're fine with that too, because we've trained you to watch Star Wars and accept, you know, big budget Star Wars as opposed to mega budget Star Wars. So we can give you the same product and spend less money. Yeah. You know, then they're going to do that with the, the Marvel TV shows. So I think they're, they're going to go with whatever people are willing to accept. Right. I don't know that other studios are going to do that yet, but we are, we are at a point where it is going to be, Interesting to see, you know, two years from now, let's say, when we're mostly, mostly normal. Yeah. Well, where and also you're going to get your. Well, well, and also, let's just keep this into perspective as far as Disney's movie plans go. Their movie revenues only account for about 16 percent of their total business. So yeah. that's another thing, too. There's some movie studios where. If there, there are some companies out there where if their movie studio shuts down, they shut down. Disney, again, you know, 2019, like five of the, of the top grossing movies of the year, including the top grossing movie of all time, all of it only accounted for 16% of their total revenue, which is also why I think that um, they, they're far more adaptable to streaming services because ultimately they don't care about making future big box office hits, even though they keep making huge billion dollar hits anyway. They care about maintaining an IP so that you can see Ray and the Millennium Falcon and the Hulk at Disneyland. Yeah. Yeah, that is, that is ultimately why you will get more of these movies from them, because ultimately they need to be attractions. So yep. whatever you need to do to make, you know, the addition onto Star Wars land. 
Galaxy's Edge is going to have a second world eventually. And whether that's something they pull from the old movies again, or something they pull from Mandalorian, or something they pull from a new you know franchise that they put on streaming or they put on movies, that that's ultimately sort of irrelevant to them. They, they need to continue doing that to survive, and they'll do it in whatever way is most opportunistic for them. I think where it comes in the matter is what other studios are doing. I think they, if they're not the only one and the tipping point is towards streaming, they're going to put their foot down to really get everyone on the board and sort of make streaming the thing because that becomes more acceptable. If they're the only one doing it, they're going to keep a toe in, in theatrical and try to compete. Well, figure out the right times to to do the the Disney Plus, whether it's the thirty dollars surcharge or not. So I think that's there's this is a this is gonna be a few years before you know which direction they're going. But you're right in saying they they have no skin in the game besides whichever one will be best for Disney. They are they are very self serving in that way. Oh yeah, I, I, again I 100 percent agree with everything you guys are saying. I think from a business standpoint, if anything, they'd be silly not to go in that direction. I think where I'm coming from is more from the audience perspective of it, of like, will we engage with those properties the same way if they start exactly. being an exclusive to streaming thing? Will they have that same prestige to them? And this is more of an ephemeral, critical, artsy-fartsy perspective. But I do think there's, you know, no matter how many great things, we've got Oscar nominees coming out of Netflix and everything else regularly now. But, and especially after this year, where I have to imagine the vast majority of things that are going to be competing at the Oscars are going to be streaming releases just based on how few things were able to get into theaters before COVID hit. Uh, but once things do normalize and theaters do become an option again, will people accept, oh, now the MCU is exclusive to sure. Disney plus will uh, do Pixar movies still have that same sheen mm -hmm. if they're going exclusive to Disney plus. And like you said, with how the other studios are going to go, because I think, even if it becomes more of a limited thing, I've heard the comparison before that uh, going to the cinemas is going to be a lot like going to Broadway in the future where it'll just be the big event things. But you can't argue that like the Marvel movies haven't been or the Pixar movies haven't been among those big event things that have been keeping theaters going, even, you know, Disney's horrible treatment of theaters notwithstanding. So I do have to wonder, you know, if everyone else is still trying to keep theaters going, you know, like the Christopher Nolans and the Quentin Tarantinos of the world aren't going to let their stuff go direct to streaming, even if you get a tenet where the film ultimately probably lost a lot of money because it bullheadedly insisted on going to theaters. Yeah. But when you have films like Onward and you're talking, you're talking about pretty much the, the brand when it comes to MCU, Pixar, um, Bond, the, if Black Widow comes out only on Disney plus to start, what percentage of the audience is going to be seeing that? I think you'll, you'll have great numbers. Like Onward came out, it happened, and it disappeared. But that's for a Pixar film. And I'm wondering what's going to happen with Soul. What percentage of, of the audience is going to see them? So how long will that energy live? Because I think Onward seems like it was two years ago. Maybe that's just because it's 2020. But uh, it kind of came and went. And I don't hear people talking about it. I don't. The, the people who talk about it are, are the awards watchers. Do you think it's going to kind of become like a second tier You know, when it, once it goes to streaming only? Or is it just that, is that the perception? That is the fear. That is the downside of streaming, that it becomes niche and easy to dismiss. 
I don't know if that's going to be the case. I think that's the that's the downside of this. The upside is obviously the fact that you can not have to catch a disease to go to a movie theater. But if the downside is that, yeah, if the downside is that you don't get to feel like you've experienced something special, that's a, that's an issue. And I don't know that there's a, there's a solution to that. I do know that like, I, you know, enjoy the convenience of not having to leave my home to do my job, but I also am aware of the fact that it's a much different experience to sit in the theater and watch something in the dark with, you know, immersive sound and, and the whole nine yards. Well, just the energy well, and the energy of the crowd and all of that adds to the experience. When I saw Endgame, uh, the the reaction of the crowd was incredible. People crying, cheering, everything. That doesn't happen at home. So I mean, my last away the actual said, experience. That was a pretty good film, and my, you, and you move on. You don't remember all the energy yeah. around it, and that, and you can't re- you can't uh, recreate that at home. You know, even just having the popcorn and all and the smells, it, it's just it's an experience. Down the line, and hopefully it won't be too late. People are going to say, I, "I, I'm missing, I'm missing that experience. I'm missing uh, being being immersed in, in my film." Right. Well, and I think even if you look at um, the Marvel shows that are coming to Disney Plus, like I have uh, lots of friends and family members that are diehard MCU fans, but they look at like WandaVision and Falcon and the Winter Soldier like, oh, I can skip that. That's not that doesn't seem like essential viewing the same way that the movies do. And I worry that if the movies start going that same route, then the whole appointment viewing, you know, because in a lot of ways, the MCU is like the longest running cinematic TV show. Uh, and you've got, you know, people like who will go opening weekend and who will turn out those big numbers. Um, the other thing I think is worth pointing out is that soul is going straight to Disney plus for free. It's not doing the premier access thing that Mulan did. And that to me says that Mulan, obviously it probably did reasonably well just because people need stuff to watch, but it probably didn't give them the numbers they were hoping for, or else I think we'd be seeing soul getting a release like that. Yeah, no, I agree. I, I just I also want my last theatrical experience to not be, uh, but you know, that's a that's a problem for another day. <laughs> so um, before we wrap up, I'm gonna I'm gonna forego the uh, political movie recommendation since uh, we talked actual politics, but uh, Halloween will be a few days away by the time people listen to this, so. I'd like everyone to do two or three horror movies that they'd like to recommend and then try to uh, space out like the type of horror movie. Like we don't all do ghost stories or something like that, but uh, whoever wants to go first, because I have a couple of odd ideas I want to I want to go with. But I'm curious what everyone picks first. So whoever wants to recommend two or three can go first. Yeah, I'll start with The Descent. Um, That's a great one. It shows up on a lot of lists, but I don't think... uh, general audiences have found it. Uh, you know, it's not like scream or, or, uh, horror franchises. I, I thought it was incredibly done and truly scary, which doesn't happen often. And, and there's more at play. It's not just fright. There's, uh, there's some psychological stuff, uh, in, in the screenplay that, which, which really holds up well. So I'd recommend checking that one out for sure. And then a scream four, which I think is one of the best horror sequels out there. Um, uh, if you have, if you dismissed it and never saw it, I think it's worth uh, jumping back into the series, checking out, maybe maybe refresh yourself uh, on, on the first film, and then go back in and watch four. Four holds up well. Agreed, Miles or Robert. 
Uh, yeah, I got a few. Um, so uh, I have been doing the uh, the 31 days of Halloween challenge where I try and watch something every day this month. Um, so I've come across a few that I might not have normally checked out. I've got one that I'll recommend that I think, um, you know, might feel more obscure to some people, which is The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari. Oh, mm-hmm. um, it's a uh, it's a German expressionist silent film from 1921. And uh, I know a lot of people might be immediately turned off. Oh, it's a silent film. It's in black and white. It's you know, it's from this older area. It's there's an argument to be made that it is one of the first horror movies ever made. And honestly, watching it in 2020, it's kind of captivating. The sets are so beautifully designed and the visuals are so you can tell that Tim Burton, among others, drew a lot of influence from movies like this. And it's one of the first movies ever to actually have like a big plot twist and like, you know, shifting revelations and your perception of certain characters changes over the course of the movie. Like it's actually pretty layered and, you know, intricate storytelling for the time. Um, and, you know, for somebody who just likes going through film history, I feel like it's an essential one. Um And then to do something more modern, um, one that I saw uh, recently that I'd heard was good for a while uh, that I finally got around to is called Ginger Snaps. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's a a Canadian horror film from the early 2000s, Um, sort of a very low budget werewolf film, but it's also uh, kind of a coming of age drama about these two sisters where – one of them is turning into a werewolf, but it's also sort of an analogy for her. She's also getting her period at the same time. So the two are kind of, no pun intended, bleeding over into one another. Oh. And um, it's it's one of those instances where it is a horror film, but it's also a character film. And it's about this relationship that takes on intri- increasingly uh, tragic substance. Um, so, yeah, I think that's one of those hidden gems that people should check out. I'm looking at my copy of it right now. As long as people don't watch Ginger Snaps back, I didn't. Uh, not nearly as good. All right, I've I've got one that's uh, a bit of a hidden gem that very few people I I've met at least, even horror fans, have even heard of it, let alone seen it. But um, I would say that behind the mask. Yeah. Oh is, yeah. Hell yeah. Is arguably the best kind of postmodern self-mockery slash meta slasher movie really ever. Now, I, I want to just say this. I don't like those kinds of movies in general. I don't like Scream. I don't like horror movies that, that indulge in, in tired tropes and cliches and then turn around and wink at the audience and go, ha ha, see, we know this is dumb. Laugh with us. I, I generally don't like that. But Behind the Mask is genuinely inventive and funny and scary and finds a way to poke fun at horror tropes while also using them in ways that remind you how effective they are. So if you want to, if, if I'm talking about like really... Um, uh, little hidden gems because I'm pretty sure the makers of that movie never went on to do anything else and I think that's really sad um, so yeah if we're talking about hidden gems another hidden gem and I'm kind of surprised this isn't more of a hit among cinephiles considering this was a, a favorite of Stanley Kubrick but the original not the American remake not the American remake but the original The Vanishing is mm. genuinely existentially terrifying. Um, so those would be two little little underappreciated hard gems I would recommend. 
Nice, nice. Um, I'm going to reference one movie that I know you, I believe you've seen. I'm pretty sure you reviewed it back at the in the day. Um, not that it's necessarily good or bad. I think you can really go down the line on that. But if you want to show someone a movie that's generally upsetting and unsettling, Kill List. Oh, oh no, I'm a big fan of that one. Yeah. Um, there's something about an uncompromised vision of awfulness that uh, a lot of films in the genre try. You know, they want to be a hard watch, but they're, they don't, it doesn't, it doesn't fly. Like you can watch a Serbian film and yeah, it's a hard watch, but it's also bad. It just like you check out at a certain point and stop caring. Kill list uh, is not that it's a, uh, it's very memorable. Actually, Robert, I know you, you like, why don't you tell people what it's about in like real broad strokes? Uh, in, in the broadest strokes. Cause, uh, it, it's weird. It's also, it's the kind of movie, it's a little bit like animal kingdom in that it's got s- like story surprises that aren't technically twists. Yeah. But it's, it, it, it's basically about recently discharged soldiers who, um, are, are suffering from some, you, you, some sort of mission gone wrong. And he becomes, and they decide to take on uh, jobs as uh, hatchet men, uh, basically, to, to make ends meet after they get discharged. And that's all I really want to say about that. Yeah. Because the, it, where it, the, the path it goes down is not where you think it's going to go, or at least not the way it goes. Yeah, very much so. Um, and on that similar ilk, so I'm going to kind of make a, Movies that go a different way than you would expect starting them as my uh, my picks. The other one is Audition, which. Oh, oh yeah. yeah. That's probably in my awesome. top three horror films of all time. Yes. And and plays so well. I don't know if anyone's ever done this, but show someone audition and don't tell them they're watching a horror movie. And see how long it takes them to understand they're watching a horror movie, because if you don't know you're watching one, you genuinely think you're watching a. Until I would say the her sitting on the box, right? I think it's the first hint you get, really. That's how I was introduced to it. I, I didn't know what I was renting, and I picked it up, and my mind was blown. And it's an incredible film. Well, I sure. think the greatest disservice to it is the fact that any DVD cover or poster or anything you see basically spoils the ending. Yep. Yeah. And I get that they got to market it, but that is a real shame because I think it's one of the most surprising and consistently inventive. Like you could mistake it for a romantic comedy for the first like 50 percent of that. Exactly. Like you can you show it to people as that. And and it's until you start to see like, oh, there's something off about this lady that things take a turn. And then, yeah, obviously there's a sort of classic horror sequence at the end. But you can you can appreciate the movie without it which is what makes it so good that that scene is disturbing, but also completely fitting with the story you're watching. Like I, I buy that this is the turn, which you don't often get with a movie like this. So I, I'm a, I'm a very big fan of it. Any final thoughts I'd like to share on Halloween? Cause by the time we, uh, this goes up, it'll be a day or two before we're recording the next one right after Halloween. So any like general horror movie thoughts you'd like to throw into the world as we wrap up? 
I am uh, genuinely interested to see what the next uh, big trend is, because I have a feeling it's going to be defined in content and in form by the COVID-19 pandemic, much mm. in the same way that um, the the general attitude of the late 90s produced that postmodern poking fun at itself slasher movie and how 9-11 um, kickstarted the... You know, I know some people don't like this phrase, but the the the, the torture porn phase, um, and how, in many ways, the slashers of the '80s were kind of defined by the Reagan Revolution. I'd like to see what comes next, because I, I don't think this. I guess I guess the new trend is is elevated horror. Yeah, which I don't really like because that's inherently condescending. But I, I guess that's sort of the trend we've had for the last decade. I think that's going to change at, to something else. And I don't know what it is, but I'm really interested to see how it changes. Yeah, no, I, I wouldn't be no, surprised I, if we I got a the, lot of go ahead. Uh, no, I was I was going to just say that, like, I think the the quote unquote elevated horror like movement is going to be the, the vessel for whatever the new trend is i don't think the idea of just like somewhat arty horror films or like horror films that have a sheen of a prestige will be the the trend that's too like specific there'll be a broader thing but it may it will be something and i think it will be political in some way the idea of someone being able to just behave as badly as they want and get away with it will feed over into the horror movies whether it ends up being closer to torture porn or ends up being closer to like tongue in cheek. I don't know, but I, I do think that cause we do have more in the line of like auteurs ma- making these horror films that are beloved at the moment. They're going to reflect as well, opposed to like, like the torture porn was a sort of indirect reaction to nine 11 and, and the Bush years of just like, I'm angry and I need to get my anger out. Let's make something more violent than we were making. I don't think, you know, I, I, I give Eli Roth perhaps more credit than some people do, but I don't think that was, you know, the politics of it all was on his mind while he was making Hostel. No, that's true, but it's usually not on people's minds. But, you know, as as one movie reminded us last year, we live in a society yes. and that society does influence how we consume and make art. I, I actually heard one interesting theory that older filmmakers who maybe make a horror movie are going to lean I've heard a theory that uh, creepy kids and scary kids are going to make a comeback in the wake of the, the Parkland kids and uh, Greta Thunberg and kind of this really, really angry generation of young people who feel like they are cut off from being able to guide their own future. And you, and you can, and they're making their frustrations known. So I've heard a theory that the reaction to that's going to be, uh, we're going to see a comeback of killer kids, which I think would be interesting. Coming next year, Dinesh D'Souza's Children of the Corn. Right. <laughs> right. I, I wouldn't be surprised if we got an influx of sort of unfriended style, like Zoom-based horror movies, just like people trying to stay in contact uh, while social distancing, either that or like isolation. Like I think The Lighthouse or something like that is maybe a good indication of the kind of, you know, single location kind of 
isolation themed things. Maybe it'll even be some combination. Maybe A24 will get Ari Aster to get, you know, uh, Tony Collette and uh, Lupita Nyong'o and a bunch of other big names on a Zoom movie. And then that'll blow up. Who knows? Yeah, there'll be attempts at that either way, whether it catches on. Probably see something in the vein of, of the body snatchers. Oh, that'd be good. Yeah. Seems All like a, a good fit for the political and the uh, and the COVID kind of could blend into something really nice there. Yeah. Or or viable options and we shall see what happens. But for now we're gonna we're gonna wrap up. We'll be back next week. Next week will be uh, a very interesting one. I think we mentioned last week. We're going to be recording two days before the election with the podcast probably not going up until after the election. So um, look forward to that. Um, it'll just be the equivalent of like expecting fathers smoking cigarettes nervously. But uh, we'll we'll figure out something entertaining to do with that. But for now, um, I'm Joey. You can follow me at Joey Maggotson on all the various social medias, um, Awards Radar on the various social medias, and uh, everyone can share where to follow them. And then we'll uh, we'll wrap it up. So Miles, Steve, Robert, you can go in that order. Uh, I've been Miles. Uh, you can follow me at Twitter at Miles on Film. That's M Y L E S on Film. You can also follow me on Instagram at Marvelous Miles, although I never update it. I'm Steve. You can find me at at Film Snork. Uh, you can also see my writings on both Awards Radar and on our sister site Screen Radar. Uh, but look for at Film Snork, and that'll lead you to everything else. You can find me on Twitter at R Solon or at Rob Solenhamer. Um, uh, Solon is my middle name. Uh, that is mainly a uh, political feed. I don't talk that much about movies. Uh, I haven't upgraded. My, I haven't updated my Instagram in a while. I probably won't until I finalize my move. That's mostly a fitness and nutrition uh, page. Uh, same name, Instagram, Rob Solenhamer. Very nice. Awesome. Yes, there we go. Just to hammer home that nonsense. Um, so we've been we've been the people from Awards Radar. You've been the listeners of Awards Radar, and uh, I'll just wrap up by saying, uh, vote, vote. <laughs>